office, if you go in the office where the copiers are, where your copier is right here, if you turn around in the corner, there should be extra lessons. And if there's not, if you'll talk to the ladies in the office, they can print you one, okay? So I'm gonna pass that around. We request a $10, uh, $10 to help just pay for the printing of all the materials. If you don't have that money, that's fine. Don't worry about it. I'm a horrible uh, bookkeeper and keeping track of who paid and who didn't pay. So if you, you can squeeze by me and I'll never know it. I'm gonna start it right here and, and hopefully through the time this morning, it'll, it'll go around. So with that said, I want to pray over you, and what I want to pray over you is actually Paul's prayer from Ephesians. So if you will bow your head, I am from the New Living going to pray this prayer over you to kind of get us started for this semester, all right? Father, I just, I just want to come before you and pray, you the creator of everything in heaven and earth. I pray that from your glorious, unlimited resources, you will empower with your inner strength through the Spirit that Christ will make his home in this, these men and women's hearts so that they can trust him, that their roots will grow down in God's love, and that you will keep them strong, and that they may have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. Father, I pray that they would experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully, but that, you would be, that they would be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from you. Now, all glory to you, Father, who is able through your mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to God in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Okay, what I want to do this first hour, and hopefully Jim will show up for the second hour, is just talk a little bit about why, why study the Old Testament. Does anybody find the Old Testament difficult? A little bit? What's difficult about it? Yeah. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. It's kind of unfamiliar territory. A lot of names you can't even pronounce. A lot of geographical places we don't have any frame of reference to. Not only no frame of reference, can't pronounce those either. Um, we have, um, it's ancient. There's a lot of ancient customs and practices and culture that we, we don't really understand. Uh, so we don't know what it means. There's a lot of things going on that, that don't make sense to us. I mean, we don't sacrifice animals, uh, so we don't understand that whole concept of doing that. There, there are stories that are, that are hard to, to stomach, that are hard to swallow. They're, we're going to encounter those in Judges. I mean, when you have someone cut up their concubine and send all the parts throughout Israel, that's very graphic. It's very violent. You're left wondering, why on earth did this person do that? How, how could he do that? I thought we had evolved in culture to get beyond such brutal and primitive practices, and yet we're, we're reading this in, in the Bible that God left for us. 
So yeah, there are challenges in reading the Bible and in, in the Old Testament, yet there's some really neat things. There's, there's stories of miracles, parting of the Red Sea. You know, there's so many, many wonderful stories, beautiful stories, stories of victory, of, of people that you want to admire their faith in, in God. And, and there's some strange stories. There's talking donkeys, um, hoodlums coming out and attacking bears and killing them. I mean, these, these stories are there. And so it's, it's colorful, it's, there's, it's, um, it's just, it's colorful, it's intriguing. It's, it's not boring, although there are boring. Every year in January, we have people talk about reading through the Bible and getting bogged down in Levit Leviticus. And, and I like Leviticus, but, and I understand Leviticus, but it's boring. <laughs> I'm sorry, it just is. It's just hard to get through Leviticus, so I, I get that. And it's hard to get through the genealogies. It's as important as they are, they can, it's easy to get bogged down in those things. But it's, it is a such value to study the Old Testament. And before we talk about that, I just want to pref I just want to ask, and, and follow me, I'm going somewhere with this, because the Old Testament, well, let me just show you, the Old Testament is our roots. It's our roots. Now, who in here has done any kind of family ancestry genealogy? Anybody? Raise your hand high. Okay. And did you find out anything really, really interesting? What did you find out? You're related to Betty? Wow. Like how far back? Wow. Wow. <laughs> okay. Okay. Somebody else. What did you find out, Kim? My great-great-grandfather actually shot and killed someone, so he left his family and went somewhere else and found out later that he hadn't. Well, did he shoot him? He did. He just thought he killed him. Okay. Okay. Anybody else? Yeah, Lynn. Part of my family were French Huguenots that were believers way, way back and were, they were in the Napoleonic Army. And grandmother didn't say the body got lost somewhere between the Dakotas and Texas. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, this, this is mine right here, some of it. And this is what my mother prepared before she died, and she died over 25 years ago, so a lot is missing. And I know I have cousins that have done a lot more. And somebody has the big table length, and I don't know who has it, that goes back hundreds of years, the whole, the whole genealogical chart like this that takes, you know, takes up a huge, long eight-foot table. Um, I, I need to dig up who has that. I got kind of lost in this last night, y'all. Forget judges. I started having fun with this because I found out things about my family. I didn't realize we're in, the, we're in here. But I also found, because um, I hadn't looked at this in probably 30 years, I also found um, some interesting stories. Um, one relative said, um, of, of interest to later descendants of Father Roberts may be some quotes 
from, from his letters I received a year before he died. One written March 18, 1934 from Norman says, I'm sending you the births and deaths of my family. You can see some of the ups and downs I've had through life. Lost $16,000 in 1894, lost 9,000 in 1907, lost your mother in 1909, flat broke both times, still can't work, sitting here waiting for the call to come up. Such is life, man is bored of a woman a few days and full of troubles, so says the good book. <laughs> and then from my grandmother, she wrote, she lived in Indian territory and they were friends with the Indians. She said, when we were ill with fever or measles, the women came and helped the sick and washed the clothes while the men sat outside on the ground when they were not helping my father. No doubt we got help from the native medicines, which were as useful as the Indians were good. We learned much from the Indians and made many friends. But as in all societies, they have their outlaws called renegades. Geronimo and his band, for example, who roamed the prairie for some time telling the white men to leave or he would be killed. Fortunate for us, the night they were to come, the sheriff's posse caught him in the afternoon. Isn't that interesting? Geronimo was, and I remember my grandmother telling that story of everyone, other people leaving because Geronimo was coming and threatening to kill him and her father said, no, I will not leave. And how terrified my grandmother was. We're gonna, Geronimo's gonna kill, you all know who Geronimo is. And he was gonna, he was gonna kill them. So, so it's, it's, it's really interesting to, to look at this, to look at the ship manifest from the 1800s when my great-grandfather Giuseppe Scatoro came over from, from Palermo, Sicily. And to see his name, he was 26 years old, coming in on this ship into the port of New Orleans. So uh, this, this is a lot of, of where, I, where I came from, uh, my people. My, my history, my roots, you know, interesting stories from people that have lived. There's, there's stories and there's things in here I didn't realize were in here. Notes that my aunt transcribed that were on my grandmother's bedside table. Her remaining um, years that she wrote some notes about what it was like living in the nursing home because she had the full capacity of her mind, but her body was just gone. And so uh, the struggles that she had there and yet um, Bible verses and quotes, I could see into the heart of this woman that I didn't really know that, that well, you know, see her heart as an adult and as someone struggling in her path and, and discovering that she had some relationship with the Lord on, on some sort, some level, I'm not sure what, but she did. And so the, the, it's, it's interesting to read this and understand, it helps me understand more who I am. It helps you all understand why I have a horrible temper it's that Italian blood coming out and why I do this, that kind of thing. But, but anyway, I, I share that with you because these stories are interesting. You know, they're very, very interesting to go back and look and to find your roots. There's, there's ads all the time on TV for Ancestry.com. Ads to do your um, DNA testing to find out what, what really is your true bloodline and genealogy, not what you've been told, but what it really is. Um, lots of people doing this kind of thing. There's a show on PBS on Tuesday nights. It just came on the last couple of weeks, if you watch it. Finding Your Roots, and they have different celebrities on, and they've gone through and they've found their genealogy. And it's a, real, it's a really interesting show to watch if you've never watched it. And some people, you, don't, you may not have much storytelling. You may not have many roots. You don't know where you came from. But I would say, yeah, you do. 
you do. And it's, it's right here. Can I have your Bible? The, this is your roots. This is it right here. These are your <laughs> spiritual roots. This is also your physical genealogy. If we're all descended from Adam and Eve, then this, this is part of our ancestry, part of our genealogy right here encompassed in these pages, Genesis to Revelation. You Southerners will understand when I say this. These are our people. The, hmm, they are our peoples. And they, our family, our spiritual heritage, our physical heritage, and we can learn from them. And if you understand that alone, that right there is one good reason to dig into the Old Testament scriptures. Let's find out what our roots are and our heritage and where it came from. Now, when I sat down to come up with what I wanted to share with you on why study the Old Testament, I came up with too many points. And so I had to narrow them down. And those of you all that are really scholarly and you study well will probably walk out of here and say, well, she missed this one and she missed this one, or she didn't describe this one well. Um, I'm not trying to cover every reason. I'm just covering the ones that are important to me that make the most sense to me. I love the Old Testament. I love the way it reveals who God is. The news says God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and he is the same. And in fact, I don't know that you really understand who he is till you get into the old. Now, it's difficult. It's really difficult. Let me read you this quote by a man. If you've heard of Richard Dawkins, he wrote a book called The God Delusion. He is not a believer. And you will recognize some of these comments that you will hear from unbelievers or people who struggle with who they view as the God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, I can't say it, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Now, and that's how some people will view God. And I've, I have sat in Sunday school classes, I have sat in Bible studies and heard, uh, and you may be in this place, you may be here right now in your own thinking, and have heard people raised in the church, sat under teaching all their life, say, how is it that God changed from the old to the new? What is it that made the change? And, my, and I would say he didn't change. He didn't change. In fact, it's in the old. If, if you want to write this down, my first reason why it's important to study the old besides it's your roots is it is God's revelation of who he is. This is where you first get to know who God is. The Old Testament unfolds millennial, thousands of years of God's working with his people. The New Testament encompasses maybe a hundred years. That's it. So he, you've, got, you've got a span of time in the old of him revealing who he is that is so much larger than what he reveals in the new. It is in the old that you really, really begin to see as he, as you encounter these people who are stubborn, who are willfully disobedient, who make some of the most stupid choices, and you read it and you go, how could they be so stupid? 
How could they display such a lack of faith? And yet you encounter a God who's faithful. Never, 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 never gives up on his people. You know, that is the title that we chose for this study. Broken people, faithful God. You're going to see some of the most broken people you've ever seen in Judges. But you will also see the main character, the true hero of Judges is God. And that is that he stays faithful to his people. And he stays true to his covenant promises. He does not go back on that. And he is steadfast. He is patient. He is merciful. He is also holy. And he is righteous. And he is, he will execute his justice. And you will see every aspect of who he is in the pages of the Old Testament. That I think if, if I, if I didn't know God as he reveals himself in the Old Testament, I don't know that I would have made it through some of the trials that I've had to go through in my life. Because I've had to, to endure some incredibly painful things in my life. But it was understanding who God is, particularly his sovereignty and the fact that he has hold of me and that he loves me even when it doesn't feel like he loves me. I could hang on to that thread, by golly. I could hang on to that. But more importantly, I knew he was hanging on to me through all of it as I was hanging on. He was hanging on. He was truly hanging on to me. So this is where he really reveals who he is. To fail to study the Old Testament is like making a new friend and spending time with them and never asking them about their past. Never finding out. Where did they come from? Where'd you grow up? Did you have brothers and sisters? It's never finding out about them. So we've, we've got to get in it. My second reason is this is where God's redemptive story begins. It begins in Genesis. It begins when Adam and Eve sin and fall and destroy by their choices what God so beautifully created. Because it's at that point, those of you all that study covenant will remember this, at that point of their choice and their fall and the curses being, being uh, pronounced upon Adam and Eve and the ground and all creation that God says, I'm sending a deliverer. There will be a redeemer for you. There will absolutely, the first evangelon, the first preaching of the coming Messiah happens right there and it's from there on. Actually, even if you go into the New Testament before the foundation of the world, you see God's redemptive story being played out from the very beginning. From in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All the way to the last verse of Revelation. Old and new are one complete story. And if all you do is study the, old, the new, you're, you're missing half the story. It's like reading the end of a, a mystery novel where you know the ending, but you don't know what all the drama was before that brought you to that ending. You may have the satisfaction of finding out what happened, who did it, but you missed, you missed all the, the major points of the story by failing to read the beginning of the book. So it's, it's, one, it's one story combined together. The, the old is the foundation of the new. The new sits on it. It's its roots. You can't separate it. It is the backdrop by which we even understand the new. Yes, ma'am. 
say that louder. I didn't say that. That's a quote from someone else. And I don't even know who originated that quote. Yes. B.B. Warfield said um, the old is like a dimly lit room and it's in the new that the lights get turned on and you begin to see uh, that dimly lit room in, in its fullness. So yeah, good quote. I kind of forgot about that one. I don't know where I ever got that, but it's always stuck with me. Okay. Mm -hmm. The old, my, my next point is the old explains the new. And vice versa, really. The old explains the new. You know what's interesting? We ask, and we can get into discussions. I've had this discussion with someone who doesn't see the importance of studying the old, and he has questioned me why we would study it. The New Testament authors would have thought that was the strangest question. They wouldn't have known what you were talking about. Like, what? Why would you even ask that question? Because what did they have? All they had was the Old. New Testament wasn't written. They're in the process of writing it. When they talk about the scriptures, when, when 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, familiar verse, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. What are they? They're not talking about the New Testament. They're talking about the Old Testament scriptures. All scripture, because that's all, that's all they had was that. And that's what they're teaching from. I mean, if you, if you think about it, if you think about just the, the number of, of quotations, I read somewhere there are like 300 direct quotations from the Old Testament in the New. Now, if you add partial quotations or allusions to Old Testament events, it, it jumps up to around 2,000. So it's around 10% of the New Testament. I dare you to try to really understand Hebrews or Revelation without having studied the Old. You, you, can, you can't. You, you just, you can't understand. There's so many allusions and quotations in Revelation from the Old. You absolutely cannot understand Hebrews without going back to the old. In fact, if you want to understand the old, Hebrews is a great place to start for seeing the two put together. You, you ha they, they explain each other. And that's what the New Testament writers use. That's what Jesus read. You know, you, we need to understand Jesus was thoroughly and completely Jewish. He read the scriptures. He quoted the scriptures. He used the scriptures to, to teach and say, this, I am the Messiah. I am the long-awaited, promised Messiah, Savior, Son of God, Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, Son of David. And you don't even really understand what all those descriptions are about him. What does it mean he's the Son of David if you don't understand the Old Testament and the covenant promises and who David was as king and that David, the Davidic covenant, promise that one would always sit on the throne always for eternity sit on the throne and that would be king jesus isn't that what we're talking about jesus king jesus king so you don't even understand what he's saying about himself what did he do road to emmaus what did he do who's he meet on the road to emmaus he meets disciples and what does he do with them he what 
He quotes the Old Testament. He explains who he is from all the prophecies and all the statements made about him from the Old Testament to prove to them I am who I say that I am. He didn't have any New Testament scriptures he was using. He was solely using the Old Testament scriptures to tell people who he was and that he is the long-awaited one fulfillment of everything that God has been promising up to this point. So my last point, which kind of goes along, it's kind of a little bit repetitious, but the more you understand the Old Testament, the more you will understand Jesus. And I would add to that, and the more you will understand what he has done for you. I, I, I may be a little bold in saying this, but I'm not sure you really understand the gospel till you understand the old. Because it's in the old that you see how grave our sin is and what is required of it. And you need all of those sacrifices, year after year, day after day, a spotless, innocent lambs and bulls and calves and other animals in our place to make atonement for our sin. And then you get into Hebrews and you see Jesus did it once for all. All those sacrifices couldn't complete the work. There was no chair in the tabernacle. There was no chair in the temple because there was no play, there was no occasion to sit down. The work was never done. But what does it say about Jesus? Jesus, our perfect high priest, once for all, made the perfect sacrifice and sat down at the right hand of God forever to intercede on our behalf, to forever have made propitiation and provided redemption, justification for our sin, that we might be reconciled to God the Father and live with him eternally. Praise God. Amen. Is that not true? And it's when you, when you unpack all this stuff in the old that you begin to get the full cube picture of what that really means. Get the depth and the breadth of it. And it begins to, to become more real to you. So that, that's my why I love, I love the Old Testament. My favorite books, if you ask me my favorite books, it's a list of Old Testament books. And so if anything, I will err on the side of spending too much time there. Than in, the, than in the new, and I have to make myself do the new. Jim has to make me do a year and a half in Romans. <laughs> Never so glad I was done. And, and then I took a pawn to disciple a young woman all the way through Romans for the next year, but oh well. Mm-hmm. St. Augustine? Oh, all the way back. I heard it first from Marv Rosenthal in the early 80s. Okay. 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 I hope that, you know, I hope in sharing that, that gets you a little bit excited to, to dig into Judges. Uh, for those of you all that are new, I, I want to just kind of explain a little bit about how this class works and what we do and what you can expect because I see some new faces in here. Um, you have homework. You've got that book in front of you. The lessons are passed out each week. Um, like I say every semester, in a perfect world, all lessons would be done for you ahead of time, but you don't live in a perfect world, so get over it. Um, they get done a week at a time, sometimes very late at night. So they'll, they'll be passed out each week. Um, you go home, you do the homework. If you have any questions, you have problems, you let me know. Uh, Brenda Sanders, Brenda, where are you? 
Brenda can help you. Jim, if he's not busy, he can help you. There are other people in here that have Genevieve, Lisa Rackley. Y'all wave your hand. Have, have been around long enough. Uh, Lynn Harvey, I'm just throwing some names out. Ben or Tony, some of these ladies over here, been around long enough. You can say, hey, I don't understand this. I'm afraid to ask Nancy. She's intimidating. Would you help me? <laughs> Help me understand this. She might call me stupid, which I never would. Because I don't, well, we have an ongoing thing with Jim and I. I don't believe in stupid questions, and he does. Right, Jim? Right. Right. <laughs> so, uh, I do? Oh, yeah. By asking stupid questions? Maybe. I ask stupid questions? Oh, whatever. I don't think they're stupid. Be careful what you ask him. <laughs> anyway, we will come in. I'm going to, I know this is a large group, but we, we will figure out a way to do it. We, I will lead you all through your homework. Your homework is what we call kind of your exegetical analysis. That's very fancy words for you're going through it verse by verse. And you're seeing what's really there without looking at notes, without looking at the notes in your Bible or picking up a commentary. Let God speak to you. See what it actually says first before you go dig into other sources. Nothing wrong with looking at other sources. We're just trying to teach you a method of study. It is not the only method of study. There are other methods. We're teaching you a hermeneutical inductive method. And the inductive method says you're going to observe the text first, see what does it actually say, before you ever interpret it, what does it mean? Before you can apply it, how do I now live that out? And so observation is your most important piece, and that's where you're going to spend the majority of your time. And if you do that well, the interpretation and the application will flow forth from there, and we will help you. Um, Brenda and I and Jim and Ryan and whoever else is teaching, when, when you come in here, we will help you. This class is designed as three parts. You do your homework, you will get more out of it, if you do it, then if you don't do it, right, 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 y'all? But please come if you didn't do it. Be here anyway. It's more important to be here when you haven't done it than when you, than when you have, actually. And we go through a discussion. It's a time for you to ask questions, for me to ask you questions and input. Because I believe, Jim disagrees, but I believe in a rhetorical method of teaching where I ask questions, I want to hear your answers. I already know the answers. And then Jim will do a theological perspective the second hour, the bigger picture of what does all this mean? Where is God in all of this? And, and much broader than just, just that particular text, although that text is the basis for it. So that, that is our method. Our mission is that, that you will be biblically literate men and women. Because more than ever, I've been saying this since I started teaching 28 years ago, but I feel it stronger than I ever have before. We need biblically literate men and women who can articulate what God's Word says. Now, that doesn't mean, hear me, that you do it like Jim does or Ryan or me. But you can do it in a way that the person that God has put in your lap can understand. But you can't if you're not equipped. And you know what? There's no getting around it. It just takes work. It takes being in the trenches. It takes time. It takes energy. It takes effort. 
if you want to be that way. And I, and I believe every person in here wants to be that way. I think every single person in here sees someone in your life that you think, I wish I knew what they did. I wish I could communicate like they can. I wish that I had the faith that they do. And you know what? You can. I guarantee you, whoever you're thinking about, just they worked hard. They worked hard and they didn't give up. And they stuck with it. So, so you can. That's our exhortation to you as well. Don't give up. Work hard. Come. Be here. Let us help you. You can do that. But we live in a much more, a darker culture all the time. And we are not the, the majority. Those of you that are older, you know what it was like to have been the majority in, in the culture. And what it's like now, it's not the majority. So we've got to be able to articulate things. And we're called to a higher level than we used to be to be able to do that. Fair or not fair, it is what it is. Okay? Questions? Um, yes, ma'am. Can I say something about uh, the Old Testament kind of tie-in? Mm-hmm. Um, to all of you young mothers and those who are grandparents, I just think it's so important uh, to teach the Old Testament to your children and grandchildren. Mm-hmm. Um, it does Mm-hmm. I mean, that will present it in, in an age-appropriate way, and yet will not gloss over, you know, you don't mm-hmm. want to gloss over the, you know, the blood and the, you know, um, but it really does show you in a different, the, the power of God, the sovereignty of God, and helps them to understand who God is, and that Jesus is God. I mean, you know, then it just introduces them to the love mm-hmm. of Jesus and, and the whole It's not. I agree. Thank you, Tony. I used to crawl in bed with my mother at night. She always worked, and we looked forward to that. And what was your mother doing? Uh, She was teaching you, wasn't she? Exactly. Okay. But was she? Uh, and see, her mother was teaching her, not in a formal capacity, not standing up in a classroom, but she was teaching her. And, and I will say this every semester as well, because you get sick of hearing me say, but every single person in here is a teacher in some form or another. If you're in relationship, you're a teacher. You have an opportunity to share what God has taught you in here. Okay? may not like that, but you are. Anita, a, teach, a wonderful teacher here, Anita. She had my daughter in fifth grade. <laughs> How serendipitous for us to... Uh, I know, I know. Um, most of us have mothers who have passed on. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I can do this without crying, but I have to say that this is my 94-year-old mother who is visiting me right now. Mm-hmm. And um, she had a book called Her Book of the Bible that she mm-hmm. read to us every day every night. Mm-hmm. My brother cried when Moses died on that one. <laughs> <laughs> and so I have to give honor to my mother. Mm-hmm. She deserves that. What's yeah. your mother's name? Uh, Frances Weaver. Frances, we're glad you're here. 
Jesus, see, the testimony. These are testimonies. They really are, and they warm my heart. Questions, comments? I have one comment. Yes, ma'am. Because I've told you before. Mm-hmm. When I was a kid, I was not raised in the church. I wasn't either. And, and yeah. My favorite movie was Fiddler on the Roof, which came out, I don't know, when I was like eight, nine, ten. Maybe a decade ago or so, we started doing Old Testament studies occasionally. And at some point after that, five years maybe, Fiddler on the Roof was on PBS. It was a completely different movie from the movies that I loved as a child because all of a sudden I was able to catch all the references. I knew the history. I knew the culture. And I understood it in such an amazing way. And it really, really, that, if there's no other reason to study <laughs> Old Testament, which I did at one time think was a very dry and boring book, mm-hmm. the transformation for me from not knowing to understanding was um, just remarkable. Histories histories and roots are are interesting, aren't they? You know, the other thing that's in here, and I would say that's interesting just from mine, and just where do you get into the Old Testament and hear the interesting stories. (laughs) But there's letters in here from a man, Louis Mayhew, in in, in New Orleans, um, Louisiana, that my mother found. And they correspond in the in, in Lewis's letters are in here to my mother. You know, no, no internet those days. It's handwritten out in cursive writing, which I understand they're not teaching anymore. And um, he's writing and filling in pieces of history, and I'm sure he kept the letters my mother wrote him. And then they they decided to meet, and so my mom and and my stepfather drove to New Orleans to meet Lewis and his wife, and opened the door. And Lewis and his wife are black. And they're first cousins. Now, I would like to have been the fly on the wall when that door opened and they saw it. <laughs> because Lewis did not know my mother was white. And my mother did not know Lewis was black. And the big family secret came out that my great-grandmother was black. And that my grandfather kept that a secret because he could not have succeeded in his chosen profession. He was a very noted professor at Oklahoma University in the languages department, spoke a number of different languages. They would never have hired him if they knew he was half black. And he had a sister, Louisa, and they never saw Louisa, but she would call and they would have letters. And now, then we found out why they never saw Louisa, because Louisa was raised black and she, all of her family were black. So very interesting, very, very interesting to find these things out. So if you don't have any interesting tidbits or know any interesting tidbits, you're going to find them out this semester from your spiritual roots and your other heritage of the biblical characters. Let's take a short break. I actually finished 10 minutes early. And then Jim is here, so we'll have some time with him. Normally, we will have coffee. I don't know if there's coffee over there or not. Um, Marilyn Bartow is so gracious to always do coffee for us and bring it and she just has a really servant heart. Her, her son, if you will pray for him, Alex is in the hospital. He was in an accident um, a couple of days ago, and they're not really sure what happened. Did he have a seizure or what? But they're, they're still in the hospital. So she's with her son today, if you all are wondering where, where Marilyn is. So take a break, and we'll get started again. Okay, 
Don't make me pray to get you to be quiet. You do not, one thing you do not want to do is get me to pretend to pray to get you to be quiet because that would be a complete misappropriation of what prayer is all about. So you do not want that. Um, and by the way, those that are wearing the dunce caps or aren't allowed to kind of see, next time I hope you guys try harder and get here on time. Uh, I just want you all to know, you know, I see you all, just want you to know that although you are closer to the donuts, I'm about to write some really cool stuff on the board, and uh, you guys may forever uh, be missing something spiritual, but that's okay. <laughs> if we love you, if we love you, we'll share it with you later. Um <laughs> You have the donuts, yeah. Uh, there'll be a bunch of people in here going, seriously, I would rather have donuts. Um, but welcome. It really is a privilege to be a part of this. I, I don't know how long I've been doing it, but I love it. I really do. And what you guys represent, both literally and figuratively, for people like Nancy and Brenda and I, um, are people who are hungry for the word. I went back and I just said to my brother a few minutes ago, hey, it's great seeing you. And uh, he said, man, I'm really looking forward to this. And I said, so am I. Uh, I, I really do. It gives me an opportunity to think about things and to, to process things. I'm a verbal processor, and so it doesn't mean that I don't kind of prepare, obviously, before I walk in here, but I'm amazed at how much I learn while I'm teaching what I already know. And I actually say that because I want to encourage you to have that same kind of active engagement with the Word. Um, that uh, Much like I'll tell people, and I genuinely mean it, when they come up and they say, wow, that sermon was really helpful for me, I love to say, me too, like me too, and not because I had some weird kind of like esoteric, completely detached, God's writing the sermon for me, it's not that, but like I have to actively engage about how to deal with the Bible and with truth, right? I've got a marriage, I've got kids, I've got a ministry that involves Sunnybrook, I've got a ministry that's, that's bigger than Sunnybrook, because God is bigger than, and it's good for us to see how all these things work together, so that's really why we're here to be teachable students of, uh, of who God is and what God is all about. Now, what I would like to do in terms of my teaching time this morning is I want to begin um, trying to think through Judges chapter 1, verse 1. And uh, the good news is it's just one verse. So it's not like, well, wait a second, I didn't think we had to be prepared. Well, you really didn't have to be prepared, but you did have to have an open heart. And uh, so I thought we would just take a look at this first verse and, and try to unpack it um, the way that I do. Nancy will be spending her time, and Brenda, when she assists, will be spending their time walking through the questions and kind of thinking through exegetically what that text means more in its confined. Here we are in Judges 1 and 2, or here we are in Judges 16 and 17. Here we are, and we're kind of looking at this, okay? That's, and that's a great way to study. What I get the privilege of, and by the way, I, like, I could do that too. I, I love the more of the confined. Let's stay more within these parameters, okay? Um, that's helpful, and, and you'll even see why I'm going to encourage you to study at it at that level. But then there is another way of looking at every biblical text, which is how does this fit together at the higher level, which doesn't mean more important because you can't have higher without lower or lower without higher. Grateful for flying, I get places quicker than if I were to walk or drive. But I also need to land the plane occasionally, right? 
And so it literally is recognizing the multiple ways in which understanding how, and I'll use the word narrative a lot this semester, we all will use this word narrative a lot, it is important to understand the narrative that we are looking at by recognizing the other narratives that exist in the Bible. Okay, and I'm going to really, uh, to do my best to confront some of the wrong ways in which I and others and you have thought about these texts and have misappropriated what they were doing and what they were saying. And uh, as you hopefully everyone can attest to this, is that one of the greatest things and most painful things at the same time is to realize, I think I was wrong about how I thought about that. I think I was wrong about how I was going to use that text. Um, I, I have learned to love that, actually. To me, it's like one of the greatest signs that I'm, that I'm, that I'm growing is the angst of realizing I was wrong. And I always tell people, I love knowing, I love being right so much that I love finding out I'm wrong because then I get to be right again. <laughs> Think about that, right? That's why people say, Jim, you must hate being wrong. And I want to say, well, for a moment. But then once I realize I'm wrong, then I'm right again. And I love that feeling. I absolutely love that feeling. So in that sense, like I'm not afraid to find out that I'm wrong. Because then I'm right. And that's the beauty of good biblical study. That's what Jesus says when he says, I want you to be teachable. I want you to admit you're wrong. And not just to go, you're wrong, but to go, but here's right. And when we admit it's the process of repentance and then trusting in God, right, is, wow, I was wrong, and now God has revealed this truth, and so I'm right. That's called learning, right? And that's why it's beautiful. Um, and so when we're looking at this, it, it, uh, this morning what I want to do is kind of give you like uh, a real quick class and I strongly recommend you either pick up this or something else like it and I, I wouldn't even mind I'm probably against the law Diane always is nervous when I say things like this I can photocopy a couple of pages for you and pretend I'm a professor when I'm doing it and give crediting reasons for it and if either of these guys who are both believers have a problem with it man I'll have to tell the Lord on them but um, there are a couple of books that are good, but there are also a couple of sections within books that are really, really good on how to interpret narratives, and particularly Old Testament narratives. And that's what we're going to be doing this, this semester. So the book is entitled, is that what you want to know? Yeah. Yeah, the book is entitled, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. It is by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. If you would like one, I mean, what we do here at the church and love to do it is I just contact Jill in the office and say, hey, we want copies. And we get it's, it's a book that actually would help every time. So when we're walking through Paul's and we say Nancy and I are teaching, hey, these are some things you need to know when you're interpreting epistle. It's got a section on that. And this is what you need to know when you're interpreting the Proverbs. It's got a section on that. And this is what you need to know when you're interpreting the book of Revelation. It's got a section on that. So it really is a great resource for you to look at to be able to, to use. So it's got a great brief section, right? And that's why I'm saying I think you should all read it. If you, know, if you don't want me to photocopy it, I'd be glad to lend it to you and you can kind of look at it and study it. It's, I'm going to try to share. And there's some other books actually that do the exact same thing as this. So there's a number of books that walk through and say, hey, in order for you to interpret these rightly, you need to know these principles, okay? And, and let me give you another word for that, because if you don't mind, I'd like to really speak to you as though you are very intelligent people who want to learn. Is that okay if we do that? Okay. 
It is known as genre analysis. Genre analysis. And you probably all know what a genre is, right? A genre would be a classification of something. So specifically what we're looking at is a classification of biblical literature. Okay? So what kind of... And, and by the way, here, let me tell you. Um, a lot of you who have already been doing this for a long time, you're going, yeah, Jim says this all the time. Nancy teaches this every time. Okay? Maybe you're not. Maybe you're going, wow, why are you trying to make the Bible more complicated? Let me tell you. I promise you I'm not. I'm not trying to make it more complicated. I'm saying it is complicated, and you would do better to know these truths about the Bible. That when you want to read the Bible as though it's flat, right? Like it's all the Word of God, which it is. I can't tell you how much I believe it is all the Word of God. I believe the Bible is inerrant, without error. That's how much I believe in this. But... This wonderful book that is without error comes to us in different genres, in different literary classifications, and where, where we get into trouble, like I love to challenge people on when they go, ah, you're making this too complicated. Well, tell me how I should, I, I love to ask them, well, you tell me how I should read it. Like it's all the word of God. Okay, so you're saying, don't read it this way. Did you get that from the Bible? Answer is, no. Okay, so... You picked one way, and we all have a way of looking at the Bible, okay? And so what I have loved is that the more that I look back at other believers throughout history and how they've studied the Bible, I say, wow, this idea of looking at the Bible that's kind of flat has always been an irresponsible way to study the Bible. Always has been. The church has always known about the wrong way to study it. And it, by the way, has always had great ways of studying it. And there are those that study it wrongly. And by the way, here's the good news. God hits straight licks with crooked sticks. You don't have to know good genre analysis to be saved. You really don't. You need to know Jesus. Okay? So don't get me wrong. But if you have some extra time on your hands before the great game tonight of basketball, um, I know of some things that we can do. And, and why don't we spend a little bit of time trying to learn about the book of Judges and what God's trying to teach us. Does that make sense? So the genre analysis basically comes along and says, okay, um, I love these words, and it's, it's taken actually from a guy by the name of Grant Osborne, and I've only memorized it because I've taught it so much. He says this, that genre analysis is an epistemological key that unlocks the meaning of text, okay? Epistemology is just how we know things, and when I say to you that to know how to interpret the story becomes a key for you to unlock the meaning, that's all I'm wanting you to get. I'm, I'm not trying to impress you with big words, but when we know, oh, I get it. Oh, I understand it. And by the way, we do it all the time. Like, my wife knows whether or not, I mean, how, how many of you, you can tell whether or not by, by a whole bunch of different factors, but your husband gets you maybe your first Valentine's card in like seven years, and he has not just cheated and got, had Hallmark write something, he wrote something. Sounds Hallmark-ish, probably not near as good, uh, but probably a little more accurate to your life. That's the problem I always have. I'm looking at a card and I'm going, yeah, this isn't me or Andrea. Why am I buying this, right? But let's say he tries to write you something. He tries to sound poetic. You look, it's got a flower on the front, and, and you go, oh, okay, this is a card kind of trying to, to, to gesture love. I mean, you, you get it, right? And by the way, if he texts you, hey, get some milk on the way home because we don't have any milk, you get that, right? Like, 
you know what to do with it. You know how to, you, you, you almost know intuitively how to respond to the card. You know intuitively how to respond and what to do with the text. By the way, those in the most very, very, very basic form, are, that's a genre issue. That's a genre issue. And the Bible comes to us in many different ways and in many different forms. But the primary one of the Bible, and that's why it's so important that we know this, the primary one is narrative, which is story. Now why? I have said in the past, because God knows we like them. Maybe. I don't know. Right? It's, it sounds cute. It, it preaches well. Right? But I don't know if that's why God did it. But I do know that the Bible predominantly comes to us in narrative form. Now how many of you remember, some of you are going to have to think a little bit longer than others, like in English in high school and learning how to study stories. Does anybody remember that at all? Okay, like if I were to write these words on the board, how many of you heard of it? How many of you know what I'm about to write? Okay, how many of you know what I'm about to write? Okay, so you, you get it, right? Protagonist, antagonist, um, climax. What's another one? Say it again. Save the cat. Um, how about this? Resolution. We actually call it, um, in Canada, we call it the denouement, which is kind of just a French way of describing it. So you have the resolution. Um, you also have characters. How many of you feel like, was this Hamlet? <laughs> right? Which, by the way, not even one of my favorites. I love the um, uh, Taming of the Shrew. Phenomenal, phenomenal book. So characters, um, you also have scene. And, and you also have like act, one, scene. So you have scenery, but then even in like a good story, it's kind of like act, one, scene. And so you have things like progression, okay? So you have beginning, middle, and end. Setting, okay, which would actually kind of what I meant by this. But yeah, it's the same thing. What's the setting? Okay. Now, by the way, so when you're reading a Bible story, David and Goliath, how many of you go, this is what I need to know? We don't, do we? Like, we don't. And, and by the way, I'm really grateful for all of those great, great, great warriors of faith who taught me great Bible stories. I love it. Absolutely love it. Um, their hearts were well-intended. Okay. Um, they taught me some really cool, I, I grew up in a, in a church that loved to learn Bible facts, and I don't know if they gave me a love for that, or if I already had the love for that, and they fed the love for that, I don't know how that worked together, but I love Bible facts, um, and then they did a lot of other things which were helpful-ish, and then ultimately not very helpful, okay, and, and, and this is where I've had to go back and maybe even apologize for thoughts and for expressions that I've made that were not very good, actually. Hey, I'm really, I preached that one wrong. I, I don't think if I really got that. So let's just take a look at verse 1 here and just kind of get a sense, in light of all of this, let's just get a sense of what, um, uh, of what I'm talking about. So the text begins like this, Judges chapter 1, verse 1. Now, after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked 
What is that next word? Yes. But making sure that we're on this page, it's what? It's Yahweh. How do we know that's Yahweh? It's all capital. So again, I, I'm, I always want to assume everybody knows this, but probably not the safest thing to do. Whenever you see this, and just in case you don't know what I'm emphasizing, as opposed to this or this. These are all three different Hebrew words. And you need to know that. And by the way, if you think I'm lying to you, just go to the introduction of your Bible. It'll be right there in plain English. They'll say, this word means this, this word means this, and this word means this. This here is the great, and by the way, all of this is different than this. Did you know that? <laughs> so if you see the Lord, or the Lord, or the Lord, or we usually don't use a definite article with God, or God, these are all different words, okay? All different words. This one here is his name. Yahweh, okay? So never see L-O-R-D, all in caps, that's his name. And by the way, that's a big deal, okay? Because um, I never knew as a kid the phrase, the Lord, the Lord is God. Like, God, uh, here's how I read it. God, 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 God. Like, okay, Captain Redundant, seriously. That makes no sense at all to me. I never got it. But when it says, the Lord, the Lord is God, it's literally Yahweh, Yahweh is God. And that is, it's, it's making an exclamation that what owns this, say, if we're kind of classify him, and he's all by himself in his classification, what, who is God, and, and you'll, you'll see this in, in the judge's narratives, you'll see this in the surrounding narratives, other people are going, Baal, Baal is God. Moloch, Moloch is God. Ra, Ra is God. And what's our, what's our exclamation? Yahweh, Yahweh is God, okay? So I love, I mean, I just, I love the fact that I, I have this constantly in my house with a Muslim who lives with us. We always have debates, and I love to remind them, Yahweh, Yahweh is God. Allah is not. Okay? Because he's not. So we have kind of these chanting, what's well, complicated? You've got you to gotta be 20 minutes in our house, and then you'll realize, wow, sure glad that we don't live here. Um, but we do different things uh, to just recognize what's going on here. So another thing that you need to know, that this name means a lot, and you've got to be careful, don't make too much of this, but it's actually true every time you read it. This brings with it the covenantal nature of God. So it's not just his name. It, it kind of draws back to Yahweh who made a covenant with Abram, to Yahweh who made a covenant with his people Israel. And so it kind of pulls into it when you read it. And again, I don't know if it's all, I think it's stressing it too much, but it is his covenantal name. So I don't know if it's always trying to underline the covenantal aspect of it, but I don't know. I think it's always good to have in the back of your mind the covenantal connection to it. We'll see why here in a moment. So what it's describing here, that the children of Israel asked Yahweh, saying, who shall go up for us 
against the Canaanites first to fight against them. Okay, So that's kind of how the, the book of Judges begins. And so now we've got to try to figure out, okay, so what is essentially happening here? And that's where we get to break this down. So um, lots of different ways that we can look at this. And you know what these are, and we'll kind of break some of those pieces down. It's good to know about L-O-R-D. That's just kind of an ongoing thing. Let me, for my last remaining moments, let me describe to you the, the kind of the big picture ways in which every week I want to challenge you to look at your story and to linger longer at this level, okay? First of all, by recognizing that the book of Judges, I love this. Now, after the death of Joshua, okay, that means there's a bigger story, right? If I was, if I was going to begin this and I didn't know anything about the Bible, I would ask questions like what? Who's Joshua? I would ask questions like, so who are the children of Israel? I would ask, like, who are the Canaanites and why are they fighting? Right? Great questions. So when you come into this, realize, and, and most of us know it. Most of us know the backstory. But let's just pretend for a moment that much like the Kellogg's uh, cornflakes commercial years ago, I love this statement, and I think about it whenever I have to preach a story that everybody knows. How can I taste Kellogg's cornflakes again for the first time? Right? That's kind of what I want to do. I want to taste this again for the first time. By the way, not pretending that I don't know anything. I'm not trying to pretend that I'm dumb. But I do want to admit that I'm still teachable. Like, show me where I'm wrong. And sometimes, sometimes, actually a lot of times, I'm wrong because my view was small. So it wasn't like my view was completely in error. My problem was my view was small. And do you think God wants to give you a bigger picture of himself? God wants you to see, yeah, you thought this. I love this. Are you ready? Do you think this gets to the full extent of who God is? Right? And I love thinking about that. So that's why when we look at these narratives and we just look at, I mean, just verse 1, you go, wow, there's a lot of backstory there. Therefore, what I'm about to tell you is, 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 is beautifully true of the book of Judges, but it can actually be used of any part of the Bible. Okay, so what I'm giving you is always found in any book that discusses this. It's found in this one. It's found in Blobberg and Hubbard's. It's actually found in, you know, you name it, uh, Duval and Hayes. All of the big books talk about this. It says essentially that there are three levels of the narrative, okay? Three levels of the narrative, and you need to always be aware of each of these levels as you move through them, okay? So the first level of the narrative, surprise, surprise, is what I talk about every Sunday on that back wall. How many of you know what it says? What's the first square? Do you remember? First square says what, Tara? Creation. Second square says what? Fall. Third square says what? Redemption. Fourth square says what? Restoration. That is also known as, I call it sometimes the big picture. I, I, you know, the word that always comes to mind is the meta big narrative. The meta narrative. And that is... When I say level one, it's actually like the highest level, the meta narrative, which is, you know, we've chosen, and we're not, I mean, I promise you, I didn't invent that. Ryan, Ryan even the brilliant Ryan Vincent didn't invent that. Um, that's kind of the big move. These three or four pieces that you could either break up, um, I, I don't, I, I never see it less than four, but basically the idea is, is that why do we need creation? Because we need to know who owns all this. Why do we need fall? Because how else do we explain how messed up we are? 
how else do we explain redemption? Because you tell me what God is doing from, and I love it. I don't know if you guys have ever walked up and seen the text underneath it. Okay? Creation, Genesis 1 and 2. Fall. Actually, I don't even remember. Did we put it all the way to the end on that one? No, we just have it. Genesis 3, which is where the fall is. Okay? And then, do you know what it says for redemption? It says Genesis, it might even say Genesis 3. It either says Genesis 3 or Genesis 4, and then it has, like, Revelation 22. And we want to point out, like, redemption is not Matthew 1. Redemption is right after the fall is the story of redemption. And it runs all the way through, right? And then the story of restoration same thing, that God is in the process of having made and his creation having rebelled, God is in the process of redeeming and then um, uh, correspondingly restoring his broken creation to himself, okay? So the meta narrative is really important for you to remember. What is the big picture of order or of, of, of creation, of fall, of redeem, redemption and restoration? Like, where are we, in essence, in that story? So even though we are in the redeeming and the restoring aspect, like, we need to remember there's a fall. And we need to remember that there really is, like, a, a way in which it should be. And whenever you forget that, no matter what story that you're looking at, David and Goliath, um, the story, we're going to be in the Judges, so the stories of Gideon or the stories of Samson or the stories of Jephthah or the stories of Deborah, I mean, these actually don't just stand outside, but they actually fit in what God is doing. They fit in the post-fall, redemptive, restorative parts of what God is actually doing. So they are a slice of a bigger pie. And when we forget that, we are going to get into some big troubles. So number one, it's good for us to always go back and say, so where are we in all of this? And how is this, in light of the fall, how is redemption and restoration being brought in through this particular account? Okay? Big picture. But the problem with big picture is, um, well, the, the beauty of big picture is, that's why I love flying, because I'm just amazed at how much space exists in the world. Like, there's just a lot of space. I'm not up in heaven going, wow, it seems so crowded down there. I'm like, literally like flying over most of America and just going, wow, there is a lot of room around here. A lot of room that exists. Now, no one wants to live in it. It's kind of like Canada. Nobody wants to live in it. But it's not for lack of room. We have lots of room, okay? So there is a lot of room, and so you can see the big picture, but you don't get the details, Right? It's kind of like the way my eyes are working now. I can tell those are words. Knowing them would be really helpful. You know what I mean? And I'm officially at the point where I will borrow your reader's glasses to figure out how to work the menu. I'm at that point in my life, and I am okay with it. Number two, okay, and this is kind of that second level. Um, the second level is the Israel story. Now, again, it's, it's going to work predominantly in, when, when looking at the Old Testament. Um, and Israel's story definitely does not end. It's not like it's all about Israel. It's not about Israel. It's about God. But you literally have the story of Israel 
and recognizing, because it's a big part of the Old Testament, is it not? <laughs> I mean, there's no way you can, you can deny that. Now, I would argue Israel finds its place within the meta narrative because it's really about God, right? So what's it about? It's about God. What's it about? It's about Israel, kind of looking at it at that level, Old Testament. It's about Israel, and it's about how God, meta-narrative, is using Israel to accomplish his purpose. What purpose? His redemptive and restorative purposes. Okay, what does that mean? Well, and you and I know, God, praise be to his name, that he was going to send his son in order to fulfill. So we know that. But you need to recognize how important it is that when we're looking at the judges, like where do the judges fit into Israel's story? And if you don't know that, if you're literally going, it's all a blur to me. One of my favorite things to do, and, and we did this actually a couple of uh, semesters ago, we began to hand out tests on biblical literacy. And if you ever want to take one, I have a couple uh, that will be very humbling um, for you. Uh, I'll tell you, it's kind of, I'll just say this because I miss her, but Rebecca, our old, uh, she's not old, she's like 12, but uh, she seems like she's 12. She's married now, though, so she's more than 12. She's, I don't know, 23, 24. Anyway. Um, Rebecca like scored really high on it. I was very proud of her. Uh, but basically looking at the biblical story and the biblical narrative, how well all of these things fit together, and you might go, I have no idea. That is one of the reasons why it can be confusing to, to people in terms of understanding the Bible. So if I say Moses, David, Noah, Daniel, Elijah, Isaiah, Malachi, Ahab, like, does that just sound like, like you have no idea how it goes together? For example, if I were to say to you, Sir John A. MacDonald, Sir Wilfrid Laurier, John G. Diefenbaker, Pierre, I'm doing Canadian Prime Ministers, which I know you guys probably have a good idea of. Um, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, right? How many of you know who, how many of you know the name Trudeau? Okay, so you know the name Trudeau. But how many of you know, like, Sir Wilfrid Laurier, Arthur Meehan? Right? So you have no, you don't even, you don't know what they look like. You don't know what time period they're in. You don't know what aspect within Canadian history. So you don't know that Sir John A. MacDonald was our George Washington. Except he didn't have to fight the British. He just complained at them for a while until they said, fine, go away. Okay? It's amazing what 100 years will do to British people. Uh, but literally, so I say Sir John A. MacDonald, you get nothing. Sir Wilford Laurier, you're not thinking about the railroads going across, like nothing, right? You have no context for Sir Wilford Laurier, okay? And that's, I mean, to give you a great context, imagine if, if George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Ronald Reagan, Harry S. Truman, like you had no concept of, like, it was like you were saying, they could be buddies, Imagine how much of American history you would lose if you could not differentiate between those men. Think about that. American history loses all of its significance if you cannot place them. Does that make sense? So do you see, the, you see what is lost? Like you don't get, like which one was the founder and which one had to fight and try to hold a union together and which one had to fight an enemy from without? You... you so when we, and this is why it is important. So when I say Abraham and Joseph, and then when I say 
um, Moses, and I say Caleb, and I say Solomon, and I say Rehoboam, and I say Asa, and I say Josiah, like if those are just Canadian prime ministers to you, like you, you really don't get why, what kind of that, the, the, the importance of the story. Because there was a time when Israel didn't have a land. And then there was a time when Israel wandered in the desert. And then there was a time when Israel was told to take over the land. And then there was a time when they didn't have a king. And then there was a time when they did have a king and they were actually good guys. And then there was a time when the kings were really, really terrible. And then there was a time when God said, you can't have your land anymore. And then there was a time when he said, you could have it back again. Okay? Here's what I would really honestly challenge you to do. You want some application? I'll give you some application. You need to know the big sweeping story of Israel. You need to be able to go from Genesis to Malachi, and the good news is in like five acts, six acts, not 475 acts, but the big sweep, a promise to Abraham, a time in Egypt, a time pilgriming out, in which case they get the law there. And then a time when they are taking over the land and failing in it and they don't have a king. And then a time when they have a king and they're failing with the king. And then a time when the prophets show up to remind them that they're not doing what they were told to do at Sinai. And then a time when they had to live in a foreign land. And then a time when God restored them. If you can't know those, break, those, those huge sweeping things, then you don't get any kind of a feel. No wonder you are... Uh, wrestling with and struggling with, like, what is God doing and where is God going? Like, I don't even get, how many of you feel, you don't have to raise your hands, right? I'm big on raising hands, I've noticed recently. Um, but how, because I want to get, I want to get some, like, work with me here, people. Um, I promise you, I, it may not look like it, I'm trying the best as I can up here. But it, no wonder that we feel like God isn't doing anything because we don't even feel like he's moving in history. No wonder I feel like maybe I should just try to be good. Maybe that's what this is all about. Isn't that what all God wants? It's just for us to be, try to be good? Isn't that what he did to David? And isn't that what he did to Moses? And isn't it all try to be good stuff? No. But if we all have Canadian prime ministers as our context, no wonder you can't feel like we're going anywhere. And when we don't feel like we can go anywhere, what do we do? Well, let's try to be good. That never hurt anybody, right? Actually, no, it hurts everybody. It really does. I'm no longer impressed with good people and consider them to be actually um, a major obstacle to what God is doing in the world, okay? When a university cannot figure out that a speaker who comes and speaks at their university is not a perfect reflection of Christian living, I just need strength. Anyway, uh, more about that on Sunday. Uh, but as, as if, if you cannot detect that, then you really cannot feel where God is going. And if you cannot feel where God is going, no wonder you don't feel like he's going anywhere in you. Right? I love the fact that Israel's story is our story. Why do you think I'm going to Israel in, in May? Because I want to go back and see my people. And I want to go to where my story began. And I want to see the places where my heroes and the heroes of the faith that I loved and I want to, I mean, I just, I cannot tell you how much that just brings the story to life. So do you know the story of Israel? So what we are going to do is recognize that where we are in many respects is kind of like right here. This is a story of the judges. It's right in the middle of the R. 
It's not step one. It's not George Washington. But it's also not Barack Obama. It's not way down here. It's, it's kind of in the middle. So these things matter, by the way. Do they have a law? Yes or no? Do they have a king? Yes or no? Do they have a prophet? Yes or no? No. That will catch some people. There are no prophets. Okay. Do they have a temple? Yes or no? No. Do they have clearly defined borders for their tribes? Yes or no? No. Are the enemies in the land still? Yes or no? Should they be there? Do you see how those things matter? Why, and, and then we don't, you can quit answering, but why, although I really love that participation. <laughs> You're all getting an A for participation today. Um, it's only because one of my sons, at the end of the semester, when I'm like, how did you not get an A in this class? He said, well, I didn't realize a whole bunch of it was participation. In which I always say, you're a Johnson. That's the only thing we ever get right, is participation. But um, thank you for your participation. Um, but for example, but like, what, why are the Canaanites being expelled? Like, who's to blame that they're still there? And what is that a sign of? How does that point both forwards and backwards how do we redeem that situation? Who is going to be the protagonist in this? And who is going to be the antagonist in this whole process? Now, now all of a sudden you realize, like, the problem to solve is not how do we get good people. The problem is, is that it's far more missional, big picture, missional middle narrative than we actually realize. And you have to go through I love how some describe it. I can't remember if it's these guys or not. You have the protagonist, which they say is always God. And we sometimes we think of David. Protagonists, antagonists are usually the devil forces or those who are opposing God. And then the agonists, <laughs> those who are agonizing in the middle of the process. And that usually is Israel. They're either opposing God or they're agonizing through the whole process. So you have to remember and then you have to, as you're interpreting the narrative in light of all of these things, okay? Nancy talked about the concept of repetition, which is a huge part of the narrative. Um, and the big part that is found in this particular book, the repeated phrase is what? Did anybody know the judges, the famous judge repetition? In those eyes. And it begins with what? In those days... Israel had no king, and each man did as what was fit or what was right in his own eyes. So that's a repeated marker throughout the book, which then kind of sets the tone. Now, here's what this also saves us from doing when you're looking at this middle level, is it also saves us, um, and again, I am really, I swear to you, probably about five or ten years ago, I was, it was kind of fun for me to take shots. Um, now, as I get older, I realize, wow, like, I need grace in terms of all of my poor preaching and all of my poor teaching in my life. And so I want someone, when I'm dead, to be nice to me. Uh, they didn't know better, but I just had a lot of Sunday school teachers that were, they were daring me to be a Daniel, challenging me to be a Caleb. I can alliterate this all the way through, I think. Um, encouraging me to be an Elijah. <laughs> you know, that's, they really wanted me to do this. They really wanted me to, to walk through this. And I, I think that what they got wrong was they got the wrong protagonist. They, they kind of missed the boat on that. That's really not what those stories are designed to do. 
And when you look at them in Israel, it's not, yeah, all of those people have failed. Well, sure, but that's really not the reason why they're not the protagonist. They're not the protagonist because God is the protagonist. Okay, so God will use people, he will elicit, he will invite them in, and that's why, do you realize how important it is that when you look at the narrative, you see God interjecting and inviting into the story, and how important it is? It's not, and David realized that something was broken, so David, it's God says to Samuel, I have forsaken Saul because of his rebellion, and I have found a man with my own heart. Therefore, go and anoint this man, and I will show you who he is as king of Israel. You see how that's different than, and Daniel one day was reading the newspaper and realizing that he could be a better political leader than Saul. And so Daniel, or David decided to, do you realize how that's like different? Moses has a burning bush. Noah is told to build an ark. Go back. Call is critical. Therefore, God gets the protagonist position. And what you would say, well, what about David? Okay, listen, he's right behind him. But even, Dan, even David in his, I'm going to confuse those two, even David in his endeavors, and particularly the judges in theirs, are doing nothing more than acting on what God is propelling them through or to. Okay? So, the problem with lifting up these heroes, be a David or be a Daniel, and listen, I'm not saying there aren't things that we can emulate, but is that why they exist in the story? When we rip it out and we fail to see it in conjunction with, we're in serious danger, okay? The last one is the bottom level, which is not the meta-narrative, but it is literally the narrative itself. And I would say this, I would say that um, sometimes it's difficult to know where the narrative begins and ends. I'd like to think, some of you might actually go, well, isn't that what the chapters are for? Yeah, but, I mean, the chapters were put there, compared to Judges, I mean, thou thousand? How many would it be? Yeah, almost 2,000. The chapters were put almost 2,000 years later, and the verse divisions a few hundred years after that. So you really can't just go by chap. Sometimes it may line up because the guy that was putting them together was trying to think through where, where there were some natural divisions, but don't think chapters. And sometimes a story might actually like linger beyond where you would think it would end. You think it ends here, and in actuality kind of that person ends here, but that person, it was actually a bigger story. Think of it this way. So you're watching... Um, I'll give you a great example. How many of you, you may have hated the show, I loved and then hated it, um, 24, right? Okay, 24. In that, I remember the first time I ever watched, I think it was season three, was the first season I ever watched. I had to go back and watch one and two. Um, it was interesting how I watched the first episode and I know exactly who all the characters are. And then episode two, yeah, those are still the main characters. Episode three, you lose one of the main characters. Episode four, new guy shows on the scene. Yeah, but he's just, it's been episode four. He won't last long. Episode five, and you keep walking through, and the people that you thought were the major characters, like, slip away, and people who just kind of walk in become a huge character. It's actually a sign, I'm not saying 24 had good writing, but it's actually a sign of good writing. And by the way, that's what you will see in 
Judges and in Samuel, you will see people walking in and exiting out. And so don't just think because they're there or not there that it, that's exactly where the story lines up. But what we're going to be trying to be doing in our sessions is trying to put some brackets around these and say, okay, we're going to look at either this aspect of the narrative um, and then recognize, uh, kind of, really it's here as it extends longer. Because maybe what's governing this, and that's why the scholars like to argue, maybe what's governing this is not one particular judge, but an overarching theme about how God is dealing with the Midianites. See how that works? So it might not be about Jephthah, it might not be about Shamgar, it might not, some of these people you might not even know about. It might not be about any of these things, it might be about this. So there's lots of different ways that you can look at it, and that's where we, that's where we are going to sit down and we're going to look at the narrative itself. But when you're looking at the narrative itself, Remember, it fits in here, which fits in here. Make sense? Okay. Helpful? You'll, 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 see it when it, you'll see it when it plays out. Okay. You'll see it when it plays out as we move forward. Um, but right now, I, I think you should be able to, to. How many of you kind of enjoy this kind of study? Anybody kind of enjoy this? Um, and, and by the way, I gotta say this because, I'm, and I'm almost done. I promise. I'll even end maybe three minutes early today. Um, I have to do this, <laughs> um, and I won't ruin it for you. Have any of you seen Broad Church? Broad Church. <laughs> it, it is on Netflix. Um, I, I mean, I, I would argue it's um, relatively clean. Like I would say, it's clean. They're, they're British, so don't be surprised. You can't understand what they mean half the time. Um, but it is a fat, tell me I'm wrong. Is it not incredible? We just, uh, Andrea and I, oh, eight episodes a season. But here's the reason why I'm telling you this. It, it actually applies to what I'm telling you right now. Uh, I call it like a thinking man's TV show. Because it, 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 I, prom I promise you, if you try to have your kids watch it, they'll go, this is so boring. Because they are really trying to help you see characters in full. And they're really trying to show you the complexities of people. And they're real. It's about a little boy at the very beginning of the episode. This doesn't ruin it. There's a little boy that dies who killed him. Little boy, 11-year-old boy who goes missing and they find him dead. And they're trying to figure out who did it in this small little British town. And I'm not kidding. It just blew my mind. My wife and I are uh, deeply, there's two seasons right now. Is there an additional season coming out? You don't even know. We, we actually watch, there's only eight seasons per, eight episodes per season. Uh, we just started watching it the other day and we're already in season two, episode four. Because uh, it is just, it is literally riveting, riveting. Is it really? Thank you. Right now you're my favorite person in the world. Um, but let me tell you this, here's what I really love about it, is there is this bad person, okay? And what you actually find out about this bad person is that they're probably not as evil as you want them to be, but they still did a bad thing. And so are they just evil? And in, in, in one of the episodes in season one, this, the police guy is describing this person, and this person's trying to paint them as this terrible person. And I love how he says it, yeah, I don't know if this person is that bad. I think people are more complicated than that. And he's just kind of talking honestly. There's a, a, a person in the, in, the, in the first season who had an affair and is asked by his wife, why did you have this affair? And 
the way he described it was so creepy real. It was like, I think I want to throw up, and I think that's really helpful for me in ministry to, to be, you know, because it was different. Seriously? And so her anger, seriously, that's all it was? Yep, that's all it was. And I, as I'm watching this, I'm going, this is like life. Okay? Let me tell you, that's judges. It, it will shake up, like I, what will, it will shake you up is that how many of you grew up and all of these judges were wonderful people and we should emulate them? Raise your hand. Right? This is where, that's what I was taught. They're not. So are they all terrible? No. But there is a man who sacrifices his daughter to God, kills her for the Lord. And, and, it just, and God just appears to like let it happen. It's a really sad story. And a woman's body is cut up and, and mailed out to all the other tribes because she was essentially like raped to death. And, and Samson is a bit of a scum. And Gideon is unbelievably manipulative. Okay? For those of you that are, and I, 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 for those of you that love kind of the female side of things, <laughs> and actually I do too, um, Deborah is one of the few that just is neat. <laughs> but honestly, she really is one of the few where you say, well, what do you got against Deborah? Nothing. The, the Bible doesn't really have anything against Deborah. She's just one of those good people. Okay? And so, again, I really think you should watch Broadchurch. But if you don't want to watch it, I ultimately don't care. But I will tell you, watching it really helped me realize the complexity. What I love about the show is you find out that, that these small towns, everybody's got a story. That's what, it, that's what it really develops in a very slow yet rich way. Everybody's got a story. And good people have a bad past. And bad people actually have a good past. And how did you get here? How many of you... Anybody kind of like that? That's judges. That's judges. And so what we're going to be doing is looking at the narrative itself in Israel's context and God's overall theme and what we do as we study is we literally go up and down and up and down and up and down interpreting it, reinterpreting it, interpreting it reinterpreting it, and in that sense, have a better understanding of what it's all about. Okay? Let me give you a, in five minutes, let me give you some things that you should not do, and I'll make it quick. Okay? Number one, don't allegorize it. Okay? An allegory is basically when you take a part of the, the text. It's a, it's a way of interpreting literature and it's only, good, it's only a good way to interpret literature if it was intended to be an allegory, okay? If it's intended to have another meaning behind it, then it's great to allegorize it. But if not, then you lose sight of it. So this isn't this wonderful allegory. So a classical allegory um, or a fable, kind of, and again, there are kind of, in classifications of literature, it's technically and not technically, okay? But a great example of this would, would be like um, uh, C.S. Lewis, Lion, the Witch, and the War. I mean, all of actually his entire thing kind of has that allegorical feel to it, right? But what's interesting is, is that to show you another one, um, uh, Tolkien's 
is not allegorical. So if you were to say to Tolkien, so who's Jesus? He would laugh and go, he's the guy that died on the cross. No, but in your story, who is he? He's not in my story. So who's Peter? Yeah, he's not in my story. So who's, yeah, I don't have that. Who's the devil? He's not in, in my story. Now, I do have a number of characters that personify evil. I do have a number of characters that personify humility. So Tolkien did not, and actually they were good friends, Tolkien would make fun of Lewis for being simplistic. If I was C.S. Lewis, I would have said, they're children's books. Chill. I'm still more famous than you. But um, that's what I would have said. Uh, so you literally have, like you have allegorical books. But the problem is when we take these Old Testament narratives and we allegorize their stories, okay? So who are the giants that you need to slay? Who are those giants? And what five stones are you going to use to slay your giant? What? Now again, if you want to say, hey, metaphorically speaking, and, and you want to, fine, if you want to do that. But you know that's not what the story's about at all. You have to keep Goliath and David, you have to keep them in there. So what kind of fleece do you put before God? <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. We might even learn some stories like that. But do you realize like that's not, that's not what he, they're trying to drive us for. But, but we have this real tendency to allegorize the Bible. Okay? Now, here, let me just say this real quickly. Am I saying that's wrong? Yes. Am I saying it's sinful? No. I'm just saying that if you ever get an allegory right, it's because you're linked up either by accident or by some really good thinking to a greater biblical truth. And there's a quicker way to get to the greater biblical truth, I would argue. And ultimately, it's more of a danger of how you teach it that has caused the problem. So don't allegorize the text. Also, don't decontextualize the text. Decontextualize, and then D-E on the front of it. Essentially, don't remove the story from its context. Okay? Now, there's lots of different ways, um, and these guys do a great job going, this is a subset of this, but I'm just going to, I'm, I'm trying to give you the big picture of all of these things. To decontextualize, one of the ways in which we like to do it is that we decontextualize it by trying to read into it, um, for those of you that study literature, anachronistically from our standpoint, meaning against time from our standpoint. I'll give you a famous one that's not in Judges. But, and, uh, and David and Jonathan loved each other, and their love was better than that of a love of a woman. And, and how do we decontextualize that by putting it in our modern context? That becomes a clear picture of homosexuality. You would only get there by decontextualizing it and removing it from its historical context. So do not pretend that these guys live in Ohio. And they don't live in 2015 or even 1974. They live a long time ago. Therefore, the setting and the character and the culture of the time sets the agenda, not us. And that kind of decontextualizing really misappropriates the meaning of the text. Um, marriage is different than your marriage, like very different than your marriage. And if you see it that way, and, and by the way, I'm not even asking, I, I love this, I'm not even asking you to agree with what's happening. Another major problem is, well, it's in the Bible, so it must be good. No. No, 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 no. That's dumb. Don't say because it's in the Bible it's good. 
And the Bible may not even actually explicitly put, this is a bad example. It actually thinks you're going to think through this, know the truth, and be able to recognize the difference between those two things. Okay? So therefore, don't be offended by things like someone taking an extra wife or someone saying to their people, I'm going to give you my daughter. Um, you, you might go, that is just, that's what God had a problem with. Actually, we don't have any examples of God being mad that David takes an extra wife. I, I, know, I know it upsets you. Doesn't appear to upset God. Okay? So there, there's stuff that happens in the Bible that may defend or may truly like disturb you or me. We're the ones that are out of touch. Okay? So you got to be careful with decontextualizing it. Let me give you another one. Be very, very careful principalizing it. So what are the principles that we should learn from these things? Now, by the way, in the process of application, there will be some principalizing that happens when we're applying it. These principles are true about God. Let's apply these principles to our lives. These principles, but the story itself is not about a principle. Okay? I'm going to kind of link this one alongside of it. Principalizing is when we try to make it about us, and we usually do that by moralizing the story. Be very careful. Pastors are notorious for this. The moral of the story is, what is the moral of the story? That's not how the judges, that's not how the Old Testament errors were written. There's not a moral of the story intended. Okay? So usually there are morals in the story, but you, you will find kind of the, the unction or the, uh, the command from the text is usually not explicitly given at all. We are going to kind of walk through it. And, and there, by the way, again, there are morals but how many of you know, like, you hear a story, and therefore the moral of the story is what? Don't do that. Or, and then the moral of the story is do that. By the way, that might actually be true. I'm not saying it's not true we shouldn't do that. I'm saying that's not the point of the story. Does that make sense? So I'm not saying, yeah, we probably shouldn't do that either. No, we probably shouldn't do that. That's kind of almost what I would call, like, self-explanatory that we shouldn't do that. But what did we miss? See, when we moralize, we lose who the protagonist is. We think these are like life lessons for us. No, no, no. This is a big picture of God. And when we life lesson this for us, that is where ultimately we make a serious mistake. So don't moralize. Don't principalize. Don't allegorize. What was the other one I gave you? Don't decontextualize. Okay? There are some subsets of those, but I don't really need to go into them. Um, and I'll end with this. Th th this is where... I don't know what you thought about Sunday, but I, I, I was blown away by the story of the temptation and how I've preached it wrongly for a long time. Hey, here's Jesus' trick. We should use this trick. And, and I have done that way too many times. And the same principle that drove me on Sunday to say it's not about using Scripture to avoid sin, although not a bad way to avoid sin. And it's not about these deep insights about the kingdom, although, boy, those sure would be helpful to know when you're thinking about the kingdom. It is about us celebrating what Jesus Christ has done. I mean, how many of you, when you heard me went through that, went, wow, that really is true? Anybody else? Yeah, I'm so grateful that I learned that lesson, okay? So I want you to take that into judges. There are some judges that get things right. I'm not saying that those, the things that they use, the principles, the morals, I'm not saying they aren't good and that we shouldn't do them. But if you walk through principalizing, allegorizing, decontextualizing, 
and you miss what God is ultimately doing, then basically what the rest of your life will look like is tripping and falling and trying harder, sometimes succeeding, but ultimately failing. Because you will have missed that all of this was truly about God. Let me pray. God, I thank you for this time and for this group, for an opportunity that we will have to study your word and for the richness it brings to our own lives. Father, I pray that we would um, spend the time and the mental energy necessary uh, to work through these things and to, uh, to truly linger long in them and to know when to just sit back and worship. Father, I pray that we would bring all of us, all of our struggles and difficulties into this beautiful picture of this complicated time. I guarantee you, many, many, many times we're going to describe the book of Judges like it was written for us today. Uh, probably was true in every time period, and the reason why it just doesn't seem like when I was younger was because I was just naive and foolish. That God, your word stands true throughout all of time, and humanity always has and always needs you. We never have been able to fix ourselves, but God, you are moving somewhere, and I thank you, I thank you for living in 2016, if for no other reason that you put me here for a reason, therefore I need to give you thanks for that. Thank you for these messages from the time of the judges. I pray, Father, that I, that we would be able to apply them to our lives, rightly, so that we can bring you glory today. And it's in Jesus' name we trust all of this. And all God's people said, love you guys. By the way, you can ask stupid questions.